0: Pastor Mark is taking a brief detour from the usual series, uh, owing to Presbytery yesterday. So our scripture lesson this morning is from Nehemiah 2, and we're reading verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, "Let us rise up and build, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. Amen dear saints, you may be seated, this is elder Wayne. So well noted, the Presbytery meeting yesterday was certainly a full day, a full week, lots of moving parts, and you all did a wonderful job of serving together, and therefore we're taking a one-week hiatus break from Second Corinthians, looking today at second, the at second chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem, he had been there for a very short time here, and he is a great encouragement. There's also very uh, fitting, I think, as the church is considering its future and looking for uh, God's next man for this role. We are in a very pertinent text, really, so let's take advantage of it. Let's incorporate this into our hearts as we think through and pray through and listen to Jesus preach his gospel to us today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that, that your grace is so abounding abounding to us in Christ. We know that Jesus is the good shepherd. He leads us into the gentle paths of himself and his covenant, his church. We bless you for him. And now we pray that you would, again, Lord Jesus, show us yourself. May we relish you and grow in you in this sermon and in the sacrament. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah, this great man, shows himself to be a very good, credible leader in today's scripture lesson. He shows up in a city, Jerusalem, that is in tatters. The people are are essentially worn out in a rut, in a generally lackluster state of mind and being. Not like us by any means, and I don't mean that because it isn't true in that sense for us. But all of us in some form or another experience these sorts of things, and we're going to talk about them. And God does something very special. He sends Nehemiah who opens his mouth with divine words and encourages the people with a call to action. And as I just said, sometimes we may feel as well depressed, lagging in hope, in energy, inert or sluggish, and all of us are given to that. We just looked today at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the effects of the fall. All of this is part of our life down here. But when we are down and out or, or discouraged in any way, God sends to his church his messengers, his pastors. He sends his gospel proclaimers to brighten the hearts and lives and embolden the souls and spirits of God's children, the people of his covenant community. That's one of the reasons we come back to church. It's a principle principle fact of the covenant life. The Lord's Day, the worship, is to come here so that we are once again reset, refueled, reinvigorated for the ministry that God sets before us in the week ahead. Now, in light of all this, let's make it our goal this morning to be encouraged to loving action through our faith in Christ. Looking together at Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18, the inspiration of a leader. The doctrine, God's leaders, move the church from shame to dignity. Really, if you look at the history of the world, the history of the church in the Old or New Testament, covenant times, it is always in one of two polar extreme situations. Either it seems to be down in the dumps and seemingly irrelevant, Or it is vibrant, revived, in a loving faith and in control of everything, the entire culture around us. And that's been our our blessed estate here. So, let us observe now how God's leaders move the church from shame to dignity. First, this is not achieved through passive self-pity. The answer to most problems today is for the victim to feel sorry for oneself and to find fault with others by blaming them for their troubles. Now this isn't to deny that some of our troubles are, partly at least, the cause of other people. We're not making that sort of unnecessary categorical distinction. But always we are to own our own personal guilt and responsibility, as we've been seeing, especially from Second Corinthians of late. Good leaders, however, never encourage this sort of feeling sorry for oneself, finding fault with others, and blaming them for their troubles. They don't encourage, we don't encourage moroseness, and we don't seek to pass the buck by laying the blame at the feet of those who preceded us. Now, it's interesting for me, and I hope for you to note, that our Lord Jesus Christ, when you look at his life, we read from Philippians 2 in the New Testament lesson today, he never blamed the first Adam, who we read about in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and his sin and what that led to. He never blamed him, for his Christ needing to go to a cruel, bloody, vicious, murderous cross to die for sinners who didn't care for him, as we were in our rebellion. You never see Jesus blaming Adam. Instead, he viewed his life, his sacrifice, for his elect church as his heavenly Father's active will for him, Jesus, to achieve. And that's the attitude we are to have as well. If we really believe in a sovereign God, if we believe that he is in control and we're his children, we're liberated from the things that bind the world to their chains of slavery, to sin. So one gets the feeling, looking at the broader context of Nehemiah 2, that the people in Jerusalem were pretty much standing around looking at each other, until God sends this man, Nehemiah, to them, and he comes with good news for them. And like them, rather than throwing a pity party, let us get to applying our faith in every dimension, starting here at church and ending in the smallest areas of life that we can think of or conceive of. So all of our life gets enveloped, In this life of faith, which is engendered from heaven through the Holy Trinity, through the God-man, through the pastoral ministry, through the pulpit, through the church, a hopeful, joyful, meaningful experience. God's leaders moved the church from shame to dignity. This is not achieved through passive self-pity. Instead, grace propels us to positive action. Now, by positive action, I, I mean just that. Positive, not negative or reactionary action. We actually take the offensive. This is one of the interesting things about the church is that we don't wait to be attacked. We go on the offensive. As the church militant, that's what we are, the church militant. And we're on the offensive with love and grace and gospel and mercy, but also with truth. And so that's how God would call us to act. Instead of staging a sit-down strike, Nehemiah would encourage the people in Jerusalem to gather up lumber, nails, saws, tape measures, and whatever other tools they needed, and to get to work on the wall of that city so as to protect The covenant community of God. Now, how do we do that today? That's a good question. Well, we start right here with Sunday Church and Worship, that wonderful triad that's all under Jesus Christ and the covenant of grace, doing Sunday in a reformed, confessional, and God-pleasing way, covenantal. So that's how we start, and then we take these same gospel principles that we inculcate and encourage in each other every Lord's Day into every dimension of our life, whatever it is, our workplace, school, home, marriage, family, neighborhood, associations, and responsibilities. So the question might be, well, will God bless all this? Will he show his favor to it? his ministry in and through us, wrought of the Holy Spirit? The answer to that question is yes, he will. He will do it in his time. But even if we never saw it in our generation, we don't despair, because the covenant runs from Adam under the clothing of Jesus Christ's atonement in the animals covering him and Eve in the Garden of Eden after the sin, right through the last elect churchman to ever live. The covenant is the blessing upon us by which we can understand we're connected with each of the generations. So even if our generation didn't appear to experience all the blessings of God's grace in us, it will manifest itself in God's good time, according to his good pleasure and in his way. So let's look at these verses 17 and 18, chapter 2 of Nehemiah, and observe together the stages of inspirational leadership. Just two verses, but they lay out very nicely as they provide us universal principles for both giving and receiving spirited or good Guidance or leadership. So the stages of inspirational leadership first. Hope is ignited in the midst of despair. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now, first thing to notice here is that the newly arrived leader, their Nehemiah, simply acknowledges the truth of the situation in their case. And there at that time, things weren't very good. And generally speaking, in the Western world, I think we have to admit that the the state of the church in the Western world is not very positive. That means it's that way everywhere. But it's well for us to face the fact. There's no sense in putting on a false, phony face and pretending it all's well and waving our hands around and pretending that everything is just fine when in fact it's not necessarily the case. But notice this. A good leader, Nehemiah in this case, doesn't camp on that, doesn't just Settle there. doesn't say, that's it, I'm just going to focus on that, that's the problem. There's a sort of perverse security people get in doing that. But it's nothing more than laziness, sloth, and unbelief. The real believers don't do that. Instead, we move on to something better. And here, Nehemiah counsels the people to positive action. Again, taking the offensive, an audacious, concrete solution, and he says, let us build the wall. And why was the wall to be built in the first place? Well, ultimately to glorify God, bless the church, and everything like that, but he even explicitly mentions it here in this verse 17, so that God's people there would no longer suffer derision. In other words, there's when the church is in shambles, we are a reproach to those around us. So before Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem, nobody outside the covenant community looking in would say, that's a special community. I want to be them. I want to be part of them. That's something that's noble. When the church is in shambles, we're reproach to those around us. And worse than that, we bring disgrace to the God who has purchased his people by the blood of his son. and That's one of the reasons there's your church, you, need to continue to propagate this gospel in the way you have been doing and living it. And even if you don't see huge, obvious numbers or experiences, understand that you're obeying the great God of heaven and bringing him glory. All of this gets rectified by hope. The situation's bad, but before one board is nailed onto another and the wall building experience even starts, there is hope because God's leaders bring the message of the gospel of good news, of grace, free grace in the Lord Jesus Christ to his people and those who hear and believe are indeed joined to that covenant community, are on the elect of God, and show forth the manifestation of that through their perseverance unto the very end. This good news is that Jesus alone launches us into a state of anticipation, which leads to loving deeds. First, hope is ignited in the midst of despair, then faith is placed in Christ and his encouragement, verse 18a. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So this is neat. The, the leader, Nehemiah, tells the people of the good hand of God upon him. He had experienced this earlier in this book. And also the fact that King Artaxerxes had actually commissioned him to go to Jerusalem. Had approved of it, had made accommodation, even guards to go with him. Letters and those sorts of things. This faith here is not blind faith. It's content-driven faith based in the covenant and promises of God. Our faith is the same thing. Covenant and promises of God, sealed and signed in the sacraments of the church, of which many of us will partake in just a little while later today, Lord willing. God's pastors today and his elders do not dream up the direction of Christ's church. On the contrary, we convey it, that direction being founded on and in Jesus' blood, his atonement and his glorious resurrection from the dead all in perfect harmony in accordance with the written word of God, Old and New Testament. And note here also that there's no disharmony between God's direction to the leader Nehemiah, who is clearly in the covenant, and the encouragement that arose from the civil authority, who was Artaxerxes, who was clearly not in the covenant. We talked and prayed even today for those in authority, whether they're in the covenant or not are not in the covenant, the common grace here allows them to be a blessing to us. When God's people knew then and know today that their shepherds have God's hand on them, then they are much more readily willing and able to follow them wherever they will lead them in Jesus Christ into the gentle and sweet and glorious pastures of his grace even if that means sometimes difficult, trying, and challenging times and experiences. So it does help to have the earthly king on one side, and here in this case Nehemiah did, but that's not always the case. But nonetheless, without the affirmation of God's blessing, the work would never have gotten off the ground. After all, Jerusalem had pretty much been in disarray for 150 years at this point. People had come back. The temple had been partly built, but there was a lot of work to do. But despite all this encouragement that we see here, there was a vast amount of opposition to Nehemiah. Some very tricky, devious plans to discourage him. And if you wish to read about that, the subsequent verses would lay that out for you. The stages of inspirational leadership. Hope is ignited in the midst of despair. Faith is placed in Christ and his encouragement. And finally, love motivates activity for the glory of God, verse 18b. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. After Nehemiah had said in verse 17b, come, rise, let us build the wall, the leaders under him say this in verse 18b, let us rise up and build. What made the difference? A lot of things. There's no doubt that God had been preparing the people for Nehemiah's arrival, but once he did come and began to teach and to instruct them, his encouragement in verses 17 and 18, then put them on a firm footing and convinced them that his exhortation and encouragement was the right thing to do. But ultimately, at the end of the day, No one ever puts their hand to the gospel plow of ministry in Jesus Christ who is not spurred on by divine love for God in and through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't happen without that. These people that Nehemiah was shepherding here were definitely for real, and if you were to read the rest of the book, you'd recognize that they persevere all the way to the end perseverance of the saints, despite danger, threats, discouragement, and hardship. This gospel message, though, that you hear every Sunday, this engenders this hopeful, joyful, purposeful, vigorous, new, regenerative life in you, in your new nature, in God's people, your faith, which leads you to love for Jesus, which results in obedient, Thankful, filial, happy, or compliance, works that prove the validity of faith. Let us, like those churchmen in Nehemiah's time, quote, strengthen our hands for this good work. Dear, strengthen your hands for the good work before you, which we see them do immediately after assenting to God's provision of his gospel message through Nehemiah, his servant. Let's do some more application this morning and observe how this text relates to the church today. Now, as I mentioned earlier, by and large, the walls of the church are largely broken down in our time. All you'd have to do to prove that would be to go read the modern you know, Christian literature, for example. But there are a lot of other examples of that. Therefore, let us now be encouraged by how this text relates to the church today. First, rather than bemoaning our situations, B-E-M-O-A-N-I-N-G, which means to whine about and complain about, rather than doing that, we have a better plan. Now, there are several possible responses that all of us inevitably, and by default, have to the heresy and apostasy in the world today, and even in the uh, so-called church, broader, broadly construed. And all of us choose one of these, almost by default. So I'm going to lay out three. So we look at the the you know the city of the world, the the life of the community, generally speaking, in much of the world, right? And we have three options. First, we can just despair by saying it's too hard, there's too much rubbish, there's too much garbage, there's too many pieces to move. It's just impossible. It can't be done. It's just too big a problem. The fall, sin, the world, the devil, the flesh, it's just too much. Okay? Just, it's overwhelming. I mean, we admit, even from our confession today, that the the fall did tremendous effect of negativity. We could do that, but that is a faithless approach, and it only adds to the problem. And God does not call upon us ever to look at the mess and say, it's just too big, it's just too much. Even God can't do it. No, that's not an option. There's another option that... um, many of our evangelical friends uh, appeal to sometime and that is to just sit back and wait for the rapture while doing little or not much in the meantime now we acknowledge that we look forward to the glorious hope of the wonderful appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ and we can't wait for that that's a beautiful thing we're excited about it But that doesn't excuse us from being faithful. And I'm not accusing everybody um, that's in that camp of believing that. But we've all probably uh, heard that. You know, why shine the rails of a sinking ship? Just sit back and let it go down. But this is a completely inadequate reply. One of the reasons it's so bad is because our hope in Christ is in this world where the sin is. As much as it is in the world to come, then the glory where there is no sin. So the idea of just sort of sitting back and just waiting is not acceptable. That is a passive action which God does not approve. But then there is a third response and you guessed it, this is the good one by grace we can get to our ministerial labors and start right where we are and start picking up the garbage the trash, moving things around and start getting boards together, nails plans, architects the whole church working together and starting to in their case build the wall So whatever it is God's calling us to do, that's what we do. Now, we do that collectively as the corporate church, and we do that individually as members of the church in our various contexts of life, whatever it is. Never look at your problem and say, it's so big, it's impossible, I'm just going to ignore it. No, just start one piece at a time. I mean, after all, that wall didn't just come together. Nehemiah and some of the other guys started getting out there picking up the garbage, moving things around. So that's what we are to do. See, once we are overwhelmed, we are, for all practical purposes, defeated. That's one of the world's and Satan's great ploys. Look how horrible it is. Look how hopeless it is. Look how impossible it is. And therefore, why do it? No. Instead of that, Rather than bemoaning our situations, your outline, let us boldly advance Christ's kingdom in our lifetimes. It's interesting that the faithful Christian church in Jesus Christ is, again, always on the offensive, not waiting to get hit, going after the enemy, pushing the borders of the kingdom of God, advancing the gospel. Why not? What more is there to live for than to boldly advance Christ's kingdom in our lifetimes? I mean, look at our master himself. What was he all about while he was here? His kingdom, his church. He talked about it constantly. The kingdom parables, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It was all this important nature of the church and the gospel, and we should be too, And as we stay focused, dears, on Christ and his priorities, we will continue to transform the world around us, one piece, one board, one piece of garbage, at a time. Our evangelism will continue to be credible. It will be content-laden. It will direct people to Jesus and his church in the context of the community of the covenant and the gospel of grace. And our lives will be rich and full, though they will be undoubtedly the targets of Satan's attacks, slings, and arrows. And the world's not going to applaud us, but we don't care. We're the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the ones called to make all the difference in the world, not some of it. And then not only will we be able every night to rest our heads on our pillows with clean and clear consciences, knowing that by God's grace, despite our sinfulness and despite our weakness and despite our need for more sanctifying progress, we have discharged our duties in Christ, in love, in faith, every day. Someone will also lay our bodies in the ground as we await our corporal resurrections in Jesus. In the meantime, let us live and proclaim the good news just as Nehemiah did. The Christ rules and reigns, that Christ died for sinners, shed his blood for them, rose from the dead for our justification, has been raised into heaven, ascended there, has crowned the Lord of glory, the head and king of his church. Saved by grace through faith in his blood atonement alone, which we'll be speaking of very soon. Beloved, the inspiration of a leader goes far. Nehemiah's influence is still felt by the church and the world even today the inspiration of a leader. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for that wonderful example of Nehemiah. He was looking to Jesus Christ and building the same kingdom we are, only we're on the other side of the cross. And we have the full advantage of all these glories that are fully expressed to us in the whole corpus of the canon of Holy Scripture, in the person of the God-man now incarnate, having shed his blood for us, risen to the Father's right hand. We thank you for Jesus, our ultimate and great leader, and we praise you in his name. Amen.